0: looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world pop culture social strategy comedy and other funny stuff well join the club and settle in for the jeff Dwaskin show it's not the podcast we deserve but the podcast we all need with your host jeff Dwaskin.
1: all right richard thank you so much for that amazing introduction you get the show going each and every week and this week was no exception welcome everybody to episode 66 of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Dwoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for another super incredible week of podcast goodness. And we've got the goodness for you today. Oh, do we? My guest today is Keith Famey. That's right. Keith Famey from Survivor Season 2. That's right. I said Season 2, Australian Outback. We got one of the original Survivor OGs with us. Going to talk about all his Australian adventures. And we're going to put the shrimp on the bobby. That that wasn't even... That was a horrible Australian accent. I apologize. And I will not be even attempting that moving forward. Anyway, Keith Bamie's here, ladies and gentlemen, from Survivor Season 2. That's right, Survivor. When Survivor ruled the world, 30 million people a week watched. It beat Friends. Yes, that show with those six people beat Friends on a weekly basis. And Keith has some awesome stories he's going to share with us. He's also going to share with us life after Survivor. Keith is an author. He wrote Living Through the Lens. We're going to discuss his book. And also, we're going to dive into a bunch of his amazing human interest documentaries that he's made with his company, Visionalist Entertainment Productions. So many great stories. Keith Famey has dedicated his life to putting on film and sharing with the world. And I can't wait for you to hear all about them. And all this is coming up in just a few minutes. This episode of Live from Detroit, The Jeff DeWoskin Show, is being powered 100% by renewable energy, thanks to the inspiration from last week's guest, Ed Begley Jr. If you're like, Jeff, what are you talking about? Well, that means you missed last week's episode. Shame on you, shame shame after you're done listening to this week's episode catch up with the ed begley jr episode so many amazing stories from his career working with christopher guest and dedicating his life to being an environmentalist he shared some great tips on how we can all go green so check that episode out immediately after listening to this one also while you're immediately doing things head on over to youtube the Jeff Tuoskin channel. Follow me on YouTube and you'll get alerted every time I go live with my live show. Crossing the streams, me and a bunch of friends telling you what you should be streaming on all the channels. Every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern time, we're live, interactive, you talk to us, we talk back. It's super fun. And we've got so many great suggestions just waiting for you on YouTube, so check that out. I also want to thank my friends at Funny Science Fiction for having me on again. Also, you can catch that on my YouTube channel and the Me on Other Shows video stream. When you're done YouTubing it, head on over to jeffisfunny.com or jeffdawaskinshow.com, whichever one you feel you can actually spell, and click on the button that says Follow the Jeff Dewaskin Show. That will give you quick links to Apple, CastBox, iHeartRadio, Spotify. We're everywhere. I know, we're everywhere. It's crazy. Find the one you like, follow, officially follow subscribe, whatever the word is that that app uses, they all use different words but the important thing is that clicking on that alerts you every time a new episode goes live, every time a new episode goes live, you'll get super excited that'll increase your heart rate which makes you live longer, that's just science unproven health advice from live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin show, that's what you've come to expect once you get that notice, don't be afraid climb to a mountaintop and shout friends, family, everyone, stop what you're doing and listen to the latest this episode of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show. Maybe don't do that at a hospital if someone's in the middle of a life-saving procedure. I'd hate for them to just stop that and listen to my podcast. They can listen to my podcast later. Catch the doctors and nurses doing all the good work in the cafeteria. Don't bother them while they're doing the surgeries. Anyway, so do all that for me. That's the greatest thing you can do is help me spread the word of the podcast. Tell all your friends, I love this podcast. I just love it. Thank you, and I appreciate you in advance. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right, this is the part of the show where I share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. A little 4 one you can take with you into the real world and hopefully improve your life on social media. Today's tip is a simple one. Don't post angry. We live in a time where it's easy to get upset, angry about stuff. Do what I do. Type it out. Get it out of your system. Don't hit send. No matter how satisfied you think you're going to feel hitting send, you won't feel satisfied. It's not going to do anything. There are better ways to solve issues, problems, and get your voice out there than mean posting on social media. So take a second before hitting send, and let's just focus on spreading some love and good cheer and good vibes on the social medias. And that's the social media tip. I do want to thank everyone who supports the sponsors week after week. I can't thank you enough. When you support our sponsors, you're supporting us. And that's how we keep the lights on here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. This week's sponsor, Lifehacks.com, the ultimate place for life hacks you didn't even know you needed to know. Stuck in the jungle? Trapped somewhere in the Amazon? Did you just try and impress your loved one by hunting a wild boar with your hands? And upon preparing an amazing dinner in the middle of nowhere, you realize you forgot a side dish? (gasps) I know, right? Well, here's a life hack that'll get you through it. Stop snacking on those Rice Krispie Treats because there's something I bet you didn't know. According to lifehacks.com, Rice Krispie Treats are really compressed bars of dehydrated rice.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: I had the same reaction. Little known fact for this little known life hack. Rice Krispies were created in the 1920s by NASA for astronauts to eat with Tang. That's right. I didn't know that either. According to this amazing life hack, just drop a Rice Krispie Treat in water, and within five minutes, you'll be enjoying an amazing combination of jasmine, brown, and basmati rice. Wow. Now you don't have to worry about boring your loved one with just bore. (laughs) Lifehacks.com. Shouldn't life be easier? Oh, that is amazing. And rice that easy? Sounds like it'd be something that would be really great if you were on a TV show like Survivor. Speaking of which, I think it's a perfect time to now share my conversation that I had with Keith Pamey with you. I dedicate this interview to my daughter, Sophie. I hope she enjoys it. I hope you enjoy it. And here you go. All right, everyone. I am excited to welcome my next guest to the show, Celebrity Chef survivor contestant season two author executive producer and director of many amazing documentaries we're going to talk about ladies and gentlemen welcome to the show keith
0: famey Cue the Survivor music. <laughs> How are you, Keith? I'm good. I'm good. Survivor, you know, to, to reach back in the memory banks is almost 20 years ago for me, but I will serve up the best I can for you.
1: It's really important that we talk about Survivor. One, because my daughter is obsessed with Survivor. So when she found out I was... What's your daughter's name? Sophie.
0: Okay, Sophie. Let's get make sure. Sophie's obsessed.
1: Sophie's obsessed. So when she found out I was talking to someone who was on Survivor she got very, very excited and she started sending me some notes.
0: I'm sorry for that.
1: <laughs> which I'll read somehow. She was mostly concerned that I would screw up the show. She doesn't understand that old school survivors, a little, probably a little different than the, the how they do it now.
0: Yeah. Matter of fact, I just had a discussion, an online discussion, the other day about that, about shows now and so on, what the difference was. And I, you know, I haven't, I'm not a big reality TV watcher. I haven't watched a show since my show, so I mean, I just haven't had that time to dive into it. But I think that one thing that really helped our show to be as successful as it was it was it was very raw and very unpredictable, and they didn't have a lot of little fun games, this and that and so on. It was just a real raw experience where they put 16 people together who didn't know each other. In very complicated situations and i always try to explain to people you go in as a person you come out as a cast member and that's just what you sign up for and the other thing is that it's really the game is the whole thing is really based around boredom it's all boredom boredom forces social interaction and there comes the drama the selection process is really so brilliant on their part and how they go about selecting individuals to put these certain personalities together And every three days, there's in our case, there was you know a challenge and some kind of a tribal council, and everything else is really just boredom. Trying to get together and live, and from that comes anxiety, and and naturally it would be just with family members, let alone strangers.
1: For those listening, Keith Famey was on season two of Survivor. I think they're on season five hundred fifty or something like that right now. (laughs) Yeah,
0: something like that. CBS is still printing money.
1: Keith was on a the reality shows before people really didn't realize that these weren't totally real. Survivor, especially season one, was kind of like almost the birth of what we think of, I think, as reality TV today. You didn't realize what you were watching wasn't just something being taped. Yeah, I mean, maybe the people doing it did.
0: Yeah, so Survivor 1 really was the, the start of it all. Obviously, it, it kicked off and it lit fire fast. Survivor 2 It's still very much unknown of why we were doing the show. I I was really simple. I was a single dad with two young kids. I was offered to play a game. I found out about this game you could play where you got one in 16 chance of winning a million dollars. Those are pretty good odds for me to think, you know what, I'm going to toss my hat in this. And, you know, I was an adventurous kind of guy and a cook and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it was really about how can I walk away with this money? Now, towards the end of the show, I kind of walked away from the show. The game in my head, and I really found my own personal experience with it, which I'm really satisfied. I'm glad that, that happened. And then as the shows went on, the reality sh- series boomed big. And what happened was the networks started realizing wait a minute here, we can make a ton of money with these reality shows. We don't have to pay these actors, make it a game. They get game show winnings, and the production costs are still very high, but the cost to put these shows on are far less. And if they can create these strip shows, the advertisers love it. And Survivor 1, Survivor 2, those shows taught the audience how to watch. So Survivor really molded the format for all reality shows. Every reality show had some kind of a drama, hook, arc, prize, et cetera, et cetera. And so it really did start a huge movement. And only in the last five or so years have we started to see sitcoms coming back in a bigger way, more scripted things of that nature. But for a long time, reality TV, and it still plays big. And the reason it is, is because people vicariously can step into the shoes of somebody experiencing something. And it's like, what would I do? One of the questions I always got was, how did you get on the show? They had 48,000 applicants. And I always said, they didn't pick the best of the 48. They just picked the best combination of demographics. So I just fit a demographic, single father, chef, strong demographic, so that and if you notice, all the survivors all the, are all diff- demographics. Well, they do that to grab a wide audience. You know, you got the old guys and the middle guys and the young gals and the young studs, and you put them all together in their society. And so now everybody has somebody to root for or to hate or to complain about or to talk about and all that crap.
1: One question I had, one of my humble brags, which is not a real brag, is that I watched the original Survivor before it was a big deal. Like once it caught on, everyone was like watching. I was like, oh, I was watching it before it was even, people even realized it was going to be a thing. That's how I bragged to my daughter. One of the things that was interesting about season one, they all sort of, at least for a period of time, became famous after the show. A lot of them at least had like some fame. They ended up on this show. They were correspondents, et cetera, et cetera. How aware were you doing season two that now you're on a show. See, in season two, I think to this day is one of the biggest rated-
0: Highest rated show, yeah.
1: I think it was 30 million people a week watched
0: Survivor. Yeah, we beat friends consecutively every week for I don't know how many weeks. So the interesting backstory is that I was supposed to be on Survivor 1. I was interviewed for Survivor 1. I really threw my hat into not knowing the only thing I wanted to do is I could win this game to win this million dollars. So I threw my hat into the arena to get picked. And I went through the application process and I got picked and they called me and they said, we need you to come to LA. There was a set date. We need you to come to LA for this last round. So what they do is they, after they've gone through the whole, all their applicants, they've gone through their, they come to each town and do these little interviews. Then from all these individuals, they pick out, well, in this case, I think it's 60 and they bring them to LA, you're sequestered in a hotel room and they whittle you down after a week of interviews and doctors and this net down to the final 16. I made it to that level. They called me to do that. And I was going to Mexico at the time to do a show, a documentary for the Hispanic community for WDIV NBC affiliate in Detroit. And I was leaving to go to Mexico and I was producing this documentary and I had to tell them, I, I can't go. I I can't, I cannot do this. I am, am committed to this. And they said, Are you sure you want to miss this?" Huh? I got to let it go. So I let it go. And that was it. The show came out. I watched it. And I watched the first, I don't know how many episodes. I didn't watch the entire series. I watched the first few episodes. And I said to myself, damn, I'm so glad I didn't get on that show. <laughs> I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, I couldn't. Oh, I so glad I wasn't on that show. So then Survivor 2 comes around and the producers reach out to me again and said, listen, you were a finalist for Survivor 1. We're not know this for sure, but you might have actually been... There would have been no Richard Hatch because you were his demographic and we really wanted you for show one. Would you want to do show two? I said, nope, not interested. They called me on a Thursday. They called me again later that day. I said, you sure? You don't want to reapply and send everything in for Monday? Nope, not interested. Don't want to do it. And a good friend who at the time was uh, the general manager of WDIV in Detroit, I Told him, and I said, "Hey Henry, they want me." Are you out of your mind? You got to do this. You got to. He called me for like two days into the weekend. He called me relentlessly. You got to do this. You cannot turn this down. I said, "Henry, I really just just doesn't feel like it's something I want to do." No, you got to do it. You got to. So Monday morning, I called LA and I said, "All right, listen, I'll send everything in uh, if I still have time. I'll throw my hat in it." They said yes. So I sent everything in, went through the whole process again, and of course, the rest is history. And I ended up on the show, uh, but I didn't watch show one. Religiously. Matter of fact, they had to send it to me to watch over again, which I still never watched. I just put the time into it to see how this thing works. I just figured I'm going to go in and just do the best I can and be the hardest working guy and humble and empathetic and just don't be an asshole and just see how far I get. I never went with the idea I'm going to win the money. Once you get there, boy, anything you think in your head goes out the window really fast. You know, the moment your first night with no fire, water, cold, you know, I don't care how big of a badass you are. Everything goes really quick. For me, it was just, how do I get to the next day? Let's just get to the next day. Let's, I just took it a day at a time.
1: That's really interesting. I'm trying to picture a world where Survivor became Survivor without Richard Hatch. I'm sure you would have been amazing on season one. No,
0: I, I was not a personality like Richard. And and I think that they thought that I maybe had that same kind of extreme type A person. I wouldn't have been the Richard Hatch. I probably would have done whatever, but I, I wouldn't. Listen, I wouldn't have ran around nude. Let's just start with that. I wouldn't have been nude every time all, in all the scenes. I think that he was a, he was a great ambassador for the show, for kicking it off and all that good stuff. You know, obviously he's had his difficulties over the years, but it was a good move for him. I think it worked out well for CBS.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing the people that had the strategy that they did in season one with nothing to base it on other than uh, cunning, and he definitely he definitely was. So here you are, season two. You're the chef. Kind of renowned for, infamous for getting into a fight with Jerry over cooking rice.
0: (laughs) No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It's funny. I had this discussion today with one of my producers, one of my film producers, because we were shooting this morning. You know what happened was, the producer of the show... The producer, the lead producer, Survivor, and I are very, very close now. We talk weekly. We hang out when we can. He lives in Texas and stuff. We're just really like brothers. But I really didn't like didn't really, didn't like him as, as a producer out there. His name was John Feist. Everyone knows him. He's a big, big deal name. So I'm up top on a hill collecting wood with Kel and I think Mitchell or something like that. Because we had to get wood was a big deal. You needed wood for your fire. And I had cooked some rice. And let me back up by saying, you're allowed to bring one luxury item. And you give them a list of three luxury items that you want to bring. And then they, the producers pick out which one they want. And the luxury item can't in any way be a survival, like a knife and things like that or you know whatever. It's got to be something that that defines you as a person. So I picked a paillette pan. And I had a lid. And they wouldn't let me bring the lid. So I was like, all right, well, I'm kind of screwed. But all right, still, I'm bringing my paillette pan. And I figured I can cook with it. I could do a lot of things with it that they didn't think through the process, but I knew I could do. And so I cooked rice in it, but I would put my coat over it to try to grab steam, and it just didn't do well. So the rice, you cook rice on a pot, on a campfire with no lid, and the rice is going to be not good. But listen, you're hungry. You're going to eat, right? So I'm up top at the hill getting this wood, and I'm watching the producers. John's down there, and I see that the rice is there, and I can see everybody talking, and I'm already in my mind thinking, I am being set up. So I'm watching them make these funny faces, and Jerry's humming and hawing and this and that, and so John comes up top Now I still don't know toy totally, what's happened, but I've, I've seen it unfold down there. And he goes, he goes, so there's a, seems to be a problem with your cooking, Keith. Oh, What's that, John? Well, they don't like your rice. They don't like the way you cook. And I think Jerry's going to take over cooking. How do you feel about that? Now, of course he's expecting, I'm just going to go off. You know, I said, listen, I didn't come here and sign on to be everyone's personal chef. If Jerry wants to cook fine, I don't care. And that's the way I left it. But you know what? It, of course, In great story by editing, came out that the chef can't cook rice. And, you know, flash forward to the show's done. It's season, it's episode four or five. I don't know which episode it was. I'm sitting on the couch with my kids watching the show. And everyone comes on and it's the whole big thing. Jerry's like, he can't cook rice. What kind of chef can't cook rice? It's terrible. And my kids go, dad, dad, you can cook rice. You know, and so that was, that was fairly upsetting with my kids. But the even more upsetting than that is that every chef's dream is to be in the food section of the New York Times. Clearly, it is. It's we, we all would fantasize about that. Sure enough, the next morning, I'm in the New York Times in the food section. Chef Femi can't cook rice. Oh, Needless geez. to say, it was very upsetting. But you know the old adage, they give you lemons, make lemonades. When the show ended, I wrote a book that said, yes, I can cook rice. I signed a deal with the American U.S. Rice Council. I did tours all across the country. And I made out just fine with some extra cash, cooking rice, showing I could cook rice. <laughs> That's awesome. Including on Oprah.
1: Oh, that's really cool. Can you rewatch the show and know like, wait a minute, I explained that. They didn't edit that in. Wait a minute. That's completely out of
0: context. She's not even meaning that when she... Here's what I say. And I I said it, you sign up, you get on a show like this, you got to know you're going in as a person, you'll come on as a cast member. Right. You have to understand that they're building a story. And do you agree with all the editing? No. But you know what? That's what I signed up for. That's just it. Now, people going on reality shows, they pretty much know going in everybody's gonna walk away with something that's not a positive in their mind. It's just the way it's gonna be. That that's otherwise the shows are boring. So, you know, do I look back on it now, said, yeah, they could have done, yeah, sure, of course. But you know what? Whatever. Water on the bridge. You know, and it's sad because there are some individuals that were so hurt by their experience really hurt bad emotionally and have just still haven't come back through it they live it over and over in their mind why did i do that why did i say it whatever whatever they just gotta let it go
1: interesting so so you made it to the final three i know you said earlier you didn't think you were going to win the million but once you get down to the the bottom three or the top three which (laughs) were you like "Hmm, maybe maybe i'm gonna
0: no not at all actually the last eight or ten days of survivor I, i really didn't care where it went I mean, I just, I knew I was going to end up in the final three. We knew Tina, Colby, and I knew we had this kind of locked in what we were going to do. And I knew that they were, the two of them were closer than me. So I knew that they'd probably end up in the final two. I anticipated Colby would win because everybody loved Colby. I didn't, I never saw it coming that Tina would win. Colby was kind of like the favorite of all the young, everyone. So the last eight days or so, I really just kind of, you know, I went on a lot of walkabouts by myself. You know, it was was an opportunity where there wasn't as much scrutiny of what you were doing. And I would go for hours and just sit and just kind of reevaluate my my own life you know my failures successes hopes and dreams and so for me it was really kind of a cleansing process you know I didn't really care how it ended up so I never was like oh my god I'm gonna win the million dollars no I was just so joyful that I had this really personal experience that I started to really be able to relax and just suck it in I mean you sit for hours and hide behind a tree and just watch kangaroos walk by I mean just well you can't hear a sound have you ever gone someplace place where there's no sound except for nature As far as you can listen, you know, it's really kind of breathtaking and mental cleansing. It's hard to explain. I wish I could teleport myself back there from time to time, but it really changed the way I looked at my own personal life. So
1: it's incredible.
0: So I want. As far as i'm concerned i would rather have had that that has now lasted me through my rest of my life than the million dollars so i'm i'm good
1: yeah richard hatch won the million dollars and that only brought him woes later on right so
0: well you gotta be coming to i'm not gonna pay taxes <laughs> on this it was free <laughs> yeah i don't think so
1: uh, when so when i told my daughter i was talking to you she's like wait a minute this is the fact she throws out as a survivor junkie boston rob's wife he played with boston rob's wife amber
0: amber great gal
1: amber later went on to win survivor all-stars She says to me, Jerry, she was the OG villain of Survivor, the original, (laughs) the original villain. So that's, that's how she kind of looked at that couple more that later went on to maybe some questionable things. So I won't mention their names, but season two, as I read are the ones that the people who played season two went on to do more other seasons of Survivor that I think than any other season. Was there any, a time that you were going to come back or consider coming back or
0: when they started the, I think it was the all-stars, not sure what it was in 2003. They started reaching out to survivor individuals with informal request of, is there an interest? And I got one of those, you know, emails, Hey, would you have an interest and at the time? My father was, uh, going through, he was in his late stage, Alzheimer's and I was taking care of him. I just said, uh, I'm not, not interested at all. And, and I'm glad because he, he would have, he died. I would have missed him. I I would, I was held his hand when he took his last breath and I was there. And uh, that was really kind of a pinnacle emotional change for me in my life as well. Cause that was when I decided I no longer want to be the adventure chef guy in front of the camera. And I don't want to do any more food network stuff. And I want to do documentaries. And I, I, it was kind of a really, so uh, the point is I would have missed all that. So I have zero regrets for it. Zero.
1: I've been there with family members at the end. And it's it kind of puts everything in perspective. and Real fast. Real fast, real yeah. Fast. After that, you become a, an amazing documentary filmmaker.
0: After Survivor, I signed with Food Network. So I had a chance to do, you know, we did 32 shows that were, they were adventure cooking shows all over the world. From Tahiti to France to Greece to Memphis to... So on and so on. And I traveled and I wrote two books, two cookbooks, did those, did all kinds of appearances. What Survivor does is it gives you a small window that opens. What you do when that window opens is really up to you. And I always said that the game of Survivor really began when the game ended. That's when the game really begins for you. It's what you do with it, how you use it. And so for me, it was, you know, it was a natural... move forward with the whole adventure chef thing, which I was already naturally good at and something I enjoyed doing and took that on the road. And yeah, then in 2003, when my father passed, uh, I decided it was time to kind of pivot out of the chef restaurateur thing and take what I knew and learned from production to help people tell stories. And it's been, you know, while it's not the most, wasn't the most financially smart thing to do, it's the most gratifying for me. And I've you know, we've been able to do some pretty amazing films that, that do two things. They shed the light on somebody else to help tell their story, and they turn the mirror on the audience to have them look at their own lives from the experience they have on that we get, take them on You know, with the documentaries.
1: So you formed a, a company, Visionalist Entertainment Productions. You've won 11 Emmys. Let's talk about a few of the documentaries you've made. One in particular I'm really interested in hearing about, because it's such a unique approach to the story of the Holocaust is Shoah Ambassadors. Mm-hmm. How did that come
0: about? So I was at the Holocaust Memorial Center in Farmington Hills, amazing, beautiful museum. And I was listening to a Holocaust survivor talk about her experience as part of the Kinder Transport. Uh, I'm not sure if you understand the Kinder Transport is. There was hundreds of children were when uh, the war broke out through somebody who was very smart, I do believe his his last name was Kinder, felt he needed to move as many children as he could as rapidly as as he could out of Europe, Central Europe, and get them to England and put them in families so that they were safe. And she was part of that journey. So I I was there listening to her talk. Uh, She was there doing this talk to high school students. It was a wonderful talk. And some of the kids asked questions and they got up and left. And I just thought to myself, I don't think they really got it. It's not that the message wasn't solid. And it's not that the messenger wasn't amazing. It's just that the, the distance of generation gap is so severe, how much of it really stuck. So I thought, you know what, there's got to be a better way to tell the Holocaust story today through young lives of individuals who know that are not Jewish and know nothing or very little about the Holocaust. And what if we took a couple individuals and immerse them in the world of the Holocaust, meeting with Holocaust survivors, traveling to the museum, et cetera, et cetera, and then let them turn around and tell the story back. But they need to tell the story back through their own artistic medium. So I had to go, I went out, we took several months to find two individuals that I felt were really unique that could be ambassadors. And then you got to roll the dice and just hope the hell they're going to work out. We picked a young gal who was a graduate of CCS in Detroit and she was an art student, amazing art student. And one of her mediums is glass. She interviewed five Holocaust survivors. We set it up all, beautiful filming and all that. And she asked questions and she came away from the experience of creating a glass, 16 inch long, four inch wide or so train car replica of what they use to transport prisoners to the camps with glass butterflies flying out of it. It's just beautiful. Wow. We're gonna film this with her unveiling it and talking about it with five Michigan cantors singing this prayer. They're gonna walk out from behind the, at the Holocaust Museum is a beautiful, it's a it's a real train cars there. They're gonna walk out from behind that singing a prayer that is uh, used on a very regular basis in relation to Holocaust remembrance with an eight-year-old girl reading it in English. Because once again, the the film is not for the Jewish community. The film is for a big, broader audience of of a generation that has maybe never had a chance to really deeply understand it. So through young lives, helping tell the story. Our other ambassador is a singer-songwriter rapper from Detroit, 22 years old or so, amazing young kid. Interviewed five Holocaust survivors, toured the museum, all kinds of stuff, immersed himself deeply. And he wrote an astonishing rap song that will be used in the film. So besides those components. And we're doing some other things with one of the Holocaust survivors is a painter. So we're painting it what he's painting at home. And at the end of the painting, he's going to have a painting and it'll turn upside down. and It'll say never again. And then there's a, a, a gentleman who was, had a little teddy bear that now sits in this the museum, Yad Vashem in Israel. And this teddy bear is like the Mona Lisa displays there. And he had this teddy bear through his whole life that helped him through the Holocaust. And there was a book written and done in 20 different languages, a children's book. He's from Michigan to talk about this little teddy bear and how it got him through. And Haley is actually going to do the interview with him for that. That's the premise behind it. It's really coming together. It's really going to be a, just a powerful film that we anticipate will end up being um, seen in several different school systems. Of course, it's a PBS film as well. So
1: That's fascinating. That sounds amazing. As someone who is Jewish and I've been to Yad Vashem and I've been to...
0: Oh, have you really? We were supposed to film there. But uh, COVID hit, so actually, I have a I have a call with the director of communications on Monday at Yad Vashem. He's helping us some video footage that we need from them.
1: It's a it's amazing place to go when you're walking through that type of history, and it's you know as as you think about it as Jew, especially a lot of things that are going on now with a rise of anti-Semitism and stuff like that. Getting the word out is so important, and I think it's it's a brilliant angle to have people who aren't Jewish. Telling the story, you know, absorbing it and then telling it back.
0: Yeah, because it's, it's, you know, we've seen it. Uh, we've already seen the the impact it's had on individuals that have seen it in, in little bits and pieces of it. I know we've kind of hit it out of the park here because young people will be more inclined to pay attention, to listen and to embrace the story from their peers.
1: Absolutely. Sounds amazing. Thank you for doing that.
0: No, no, no. It's my, my honor. I, I've been fortunate to have done so much in the Jewish community over the years on a whole range of, from health documentaries to documentaries on Alzheimer's and cancer.
1: There's another interesting one, Those on the Front Lines of Cancer.
0: That was a two-hour film that it takes a deep dive into uh, cancer. I mean, the real unsung heroes in the film are those that allowed us to step into their lives as they're going through their journey and Tragically, and unfortunately, several of them in our film didn't make it, but it's it's a powerful film with some great national medical leaders of the cancer community that helped break down and understand all aspects. I mean, we everything from prostate cancer to breast cancer to, you know, everything in between, as well as new treatments and environmental toxins. And it's actually we've loaded the entire film up on our YouTube channel now that people can watch because it's a two hour film. They can watch segments. They can pick a segment and watch it.
1: Excellent. I'll, I'll put a I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes. Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: Then we did the one those on the front lines of Alzheimer's and dementia. Another very very insightful, powerful film. Cognitive mental health is paramount. I mean, I'm sure it, it may be something you think about now, but when you're 60, you'll definitely be thinking about it. If you have to care for a loved one with dementia, Alzheimer's, you you really will think about it. And so the idea is, what can we do now? And that's why we did the film. What can everybody do now to stack the deck in their favor? As best they can to avoid a, a you know incident in their life, some of which is unavoidable. But uh, there are things you can do, and so I think the film offers some solid messaging there that can help. We're also loading that one up uh, as well uh, on our YouTube channel.
1: Do you do any movies, or do you have that are not PBS focused?
0: We did a a film called Mary's Journey, toured film festivals, and went to Sundance and all that kind of stuff. That's a powerful story about a young. If you want, would you like to hear about it,
1: I would love to hear about it.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we, I met Mary. She was 23 years old. She was a patient at U of M. She had cardiac sarcoma. It's a tumor. She had cancer of the heart. Very rare. A lot of people don't realize you can get cancer of the heart. I didn't know it. And I met Mary. You know, this is one of those stories where you, you, you know people say, "Where do you get your ideas?" And I I always say you got to kind of keep your eyes and ears open. And I met Mary out of fate. I was having uh, I was having chest issues, pain issues. They would wake me up every night. I ignored it for a long time. And finally, I one morning I woke up and I told my wife, I said, these things just keep, you know, she's like, oh, my God, you're not doing anything about it. You know better, blah, 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 blah. So I called a good friend of mine who was the, uh, my cardiologist, you know, he checks up on me and stuff I haven't see him really in years, but he was the head of cardiology at U of M Michigan, Kim Eagle. And I said, Kim, I'm having these, these heart palpitation things and he says, well, you need to come to your emergency right now. I said, I'm not driving to Ann Arbor and going to emergency right now. I'm not doing it. He says, well, at least go to my Livonia office, and see Dr. Monica, you know, Leia and let her check you in. So I went there, he treated like an emergency, EKG, all that stuff. Couldn't find anything. And I'm telling you, they would literally wake me up in the middle night. They, they couldn't find anything. She comes in. She goes, you know what, Keith? I can't see anything. We need to get you in for a stress test because I don't know what this is. And I said, Monica, it's right here. I can feel it. It wakes me up. She says, I don't know what it is. I don't know, Keith. Let's get you back. And then she'll... So, we started talking, digressing. She says, what are you working on now? So we start. We just had finished working on a 13-part series called The Embrace of Aging, The Female Perspective of Growing Old. And we're starting to work on an eight-part series called The Embrace of Dying, How We Deal at the End of Life. And she said, um, you "Now I got a young gal. She's 23 years old. Her name is Mary, spelled M-A-I-R-E. She's Irish. And she was just diagnosed with a rare cancer called cardiac sarcoma, tumor of the heart. And I said, oh, I didn't learn get cancer of the heart. She says, oh, it's real deadly. It's like cancer and steroids the heart's feeding it. She said she might be interested in talking about where she's at right now and the stage that she's at and things she may be facing. I said, I'd love to talk to her. I was going to do an interview with her and talk to her about the embrace of dying. Does she think about that? Because they really felt her outcome was really kind of grim. They were trying to shrink the tumor to cut the tumor out. So long story short, went and met with Mary, didn't bring a camera. She was living in a nursing home. She was bald. Legs were swollen from the edema from chemotherapy. Sweet gal. My daughter was the same age. She's living by herself in this nursing home where she was an employee at because she had this really dysfunctional relationship with her parents. She had nowhere to go, so she's alone. I go there. I spend a few hours talking to her. She got to know me. I got to know her. And then I said to her, "This is a Friday." I said to her, "Listen, I'd like to come back Monday and do an interview with you. Can I have your phone number? And I'll call it. Your phone will ring, and I'll have your number, and I'll text you." Sure. She gives me a number. I call it. I'm sitting right there. Her phone rings, and it's the ringtone—the good, the bad, the ugly. Clint Eastwood. 1960s Spaghetti Western film. And I said, Mary, out of all the ringtones you could have at a 23-year-old, why would you have that ringtone? Oh, I just really like it. Yeah, but you gotta find that up. I, I, Mary, I, I don't understand how, of all the music you listen to. Yeah, I know, I just really like it. Mary, that's my ringtone. Wow. Next morning I woke up, chest pains were gone. And I was so taken back by this internal, emotional understanding of what was happening. So I went and did an interview with her on that Monday. I left really pissed off and upset that somebody so brilliantly smart, humorous, and funny was by herself facing cancer. And so I said, You know, Mary, I'd like to come back and do some more with you. And I started to make the decision that I didn't want her in the film, The Embrace of Dying. And so she and I became very close, and she had no one, a lot of, there was no family that could really help her. So we kind of adopted her in a way, and I ended up taking her a lot of her chemo camp appointments at U of M whenever I could drive her there, or I'd bring her to the office so she wasn't sitting alone and just let her hang out at the office. I took her to concerts. I mean, anything that I could just felt that could change the direction of the journey that she was on, all in the goal of hoping that she they get this, they could cut this tumor out. I mean, we became very close to her. When Mary went into hospice, and that was the only alternative, Mary wanted to see the ocean. Her goal was she always wanted to see ocean. She wanted to be cremated. Her brothers and sisters were going to put her ashes like Michigan. And she'd float the waterways and see the world. And that was Mary's thought. Through from a film I did years ago called Can You See How I See? I had befriended a very dear carpenter. Brilliant guy. When I say he's a carpenter, can build stuff like you can't imagine. He's got a woodworking shop. He lives in Tennessee now. Drew's really off the trail. He'll build furniture. He's totally blind. Big guy. Looks like Sasquatch. Six foot four. He's a monster. Big beard. Gentle heart. I said, Mary wanted her ashes to go in a boat. She learned to read as a little girl from a book called Paddle to the Sea. It's about a little Indian boy who carves a boat, canoe, drops it in Northern Lake Superior, and it makes its way all to the ocean as people help get it to the ocean. So Mary decided that she wanted her ashes to go in a boat. So George met Mary, and they sat and talked. He built Mary a three and a half foot wooden sailboat. Her ashes went in a glass vase in this sailboat, and it was launched on Lake Michigan, on Cross Village Beach. And she wrote a message that went on the sail. My name is Mary. I died of cardiac sarcoma. My ashes are in this boat. I'm trying to get to the ocean. If you find it, please place me back on my path and I'll bless you from heaven. We followed that boat for almost six weeks. Planes, trains, motorcycles, people from all walks of life picked up her boat as they found it to help advance it along. She finally made it to New York City. Her brother and sister flew in and her ashes were released in the harbor in New York City. And the film is so, it takes you on an emotional ride like you can't believe. And it really, I guess it, Mary beat it in her own way. And Mary, who was this insignificant individual in society, ends up touching thousands of lives. The people that followed her journey, rooting for her to make it. And she did. Mary, it's a powerful story.
1: Yeah. um, Give me a second. That's, uh, yeah, that's unbelievable.
0: You can watch it online. It's a powerful story, and it's a powerful story about humanity. You know, there's hope in humanity. Girl Scouts had her. Veterans had her. People found it and just wanted to, they just felt compelled to move her along.
1: Wow. It's so amazing. And so you feel you were, the universe sent you there, that the pain's in your chest.
0: Oh, I was, I was, it was my job to tell Mary's story, no question.
1: Amazing. You're a good dude, Keith Famey. You're a good dude.
0: Ah, thanks. Well, I enjoy, I enjoy Listen, we have one time around this, this universe. We have one time in the end, what you do, who you are, who you've touched is all that really matters. That's it. it doesn't matter what you've acquired and all this are crap. It's the people you've touched and the people you've touched, they've touched you and the the journey you've gone on with them is what will, will be remembered. You know, that's the way it's going to be. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's just fact.
1: It is true. Those are wise words. You've done a lot, and you, as you kind of said, the the real game of Survivor takes place afterwards, and you capitalized on that fame, and you converted into telling amazing people's stories through your movies, and that's so amazing. So it really yeah, is.
0: I, I enjoy it. I, I I'm jazzed about getting up out of bed every morning. The other film we're working on right now. We have two other ones. One is called Chromosomally Enhanced. What's your superpower? It's all about Down syndrome. Those that live and thrive with Down syndrome, I came to the conclusion that there's they do have, they're having an extra chromosome. They have this superpower. And the superpower is um, their capability of being kind, empathetic, joyful, friendly, that we're bringing out in this film. Filming with a young man from the Asian Indian community. He's a swimmer at Novi High School, Down syndrome. It can be a powerful, feel good film that will help people once again look in the mirror and say, you know, maybe I'm kind of an asshole sometimes. And uh, maybe, I should, maybe I should be more like individuals that are so kind and empathetic of others and accepting.
1: All your movies seem to have a, an amazing thread and message to them.
0: Yes, they do. Thank you for noticing that.
1: So it's, it's amazing. From celebrity chef to survivor to master storyteller. It's a great journey, Keith Amy.
0: No, Thank you. I don't know about master, but uh, I enjoy helping people tell stories. There's a lot of great stories out there. People just need the individuals to care enough to say, hey, I, I want to tell that story because it'll help others. Listen, anytime you can you can watch something or listen to something that can help you navigate through your own life and your own journey that you're on, I think is, is important.
1: Are a lot of these just kind of the journey to making them kind of documented in your book?
0: Yes. My, yes, I, yeah, my book, uh, Living Through the Lens, is just that. I, the first part of the book actually delves into early life and my experiences on Survivor and all that. But it, what it does is it really, it's a collection of stories, impactful stories, and why I told them, why I felt they were important to tell in the documentaries that we've done, how they touched me and how they might touch somebody else. So, you know, everything from I spent the, a, a night in OR at Gift of Life, filming a patient who was forty some years old who died of uh, asthma of all things and they, as they procured all of his organs and we ended up following his heart and his, his eyes to recipients a year later and i you know i spent that entire night watching this all unfold with his sister there it was very powerful i mean things like that to despina a young uh, who was a young girl when the nazis invaded crete and they bombed the the island of crete and she and her father and little brother ran into a cave underneath a church and a, a bomb had blown up outside and shrap metal flown through the cave and hit her in the jaw, removed her lower jaw, severed her shoulder, hit her little brother head, took his top of his head off and killed him, threw her father from there and so on. And she crawls out. She's bloodied and everything. and She's a little girl and she's crawled out of this cave and she's crawling through the crater and she's then shot by Germans shoot her and they think she's dead and they bury her alive and her dog digs her up. Oh we God. took her back to, in her eighties. We took her back to Crete where she was buried alive. <laughs> really powerful story. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing love story because it ends in a in a way you won't can't even fathom. And so there's a section, and that's part of our film, our Greek story. So yeah, you know, I just I get so jazzed by stories that I know we're gonna move the needle on somebody's thought process. That's just one of them. So I mean, there's there's a lot of them.
1: Everyone you explain is is equally or more fascinating than the one before it. it just Yeah, it's,
0: they're, they're good stories. And then, you know, we did a whole series about men and aging, seven-part series on men and aging, 13-part series about women and aging. We'll be posting all those on YouTube. For those films, we do you know what a blue zone is? No. There's five blue zones in the world. A yeah, blue zone is identified as a place where men and women live the longest with the least amount of heart disease, diabetes, cancers, etc., etc. Sardini, Italy, Icaria, Greece, Loma Linda, California, Costa Rica, and Ogimi, Okinawa. We went for the men's film. We went to the mountaintops of Sardinia, spend time with men there. We took a doctor with us, Dr. Tom Rafai, a local doctor from Michigan, spent a week with the men. Why do they live? What it is. They live into their 90s and 100s. No medications, no vitamins, nothing. What? It, how is it they do that? Low dementias, low cancers. They just get to a point and everything stops and they're done. I mean, what a brilliant way to go. For the women's film, we went to the villages in Ogimi, to focus on the women there. Once again, many of them centenarians. And one of the fascinating things to see is none of them wear glasses. Oh, wow. You don't even realize it. Wait, no one's wearing glasses. You know, And they're, they're very mobile and get around. And we were filming a lunch in there that we had all the women. They Once a month, they bring all these ladies to the community center in this little village to host a birthday party for anybody who had a birthday. And they on that particular day, they felt that they'd bring the medical doctors to come and do checkups because none of them ever go to doctors. And they had a police officer there was giving a lecture on crossing the street and how they would be careful when they're crossing the street because of cars. Well, in America, no one would be lecturing a 90, 100 year old about crossing the streets. They're not walking anywhere. These women are all out dancing, walking around. And, you know, they're very, very active. Once again, it's a good lesson about, you know, what you can learn. So Blue Zones are a, a fascinating place in the world to dive into, to understand some of the aging
1: yeah, that is fascinating. I had no idea.
0: Fountain of Youth in, in those regions. Fountain of Youth does exist. You have to dig hard and you have to work hard at it, but it, it can exist. I mean, I've, I've seen it firsthand.
1: Amazing. Keith, what, what is your YouTube channel? What, where would we search to find all these?
0: Uh, just Visualist Entertainment Productions. Excellent. And, that, and our website is just v-prod.com.
1: I'll put all those in the show notes as well so people can find it real easy.
0: Uh, I'll give you the website, The Mary's Journey. You can click on it. And there's a place you can actually watch the film. Awesome. It's it's marysjourney.com, but it's M A I R E S, Mary's Journey. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a good one.
1: Keith, I can't thank you enough for sharing all these stories with me. Thank you so much.
0: No, it's an honor. It's an honor to be here. Honor, honor to be here. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> okay, listen, We're all on a journey. And when you can share the journey with somebody that gets it and understands it and appreciates it, that makes it really worthwhile. So I, I just like to capture and put out there stories that can help people navigate through life in some way that's joyful.
1: Well, it sounds like you have been successful at that. And I appreciate you sharing that journey with me. All right, everyone. Keith Famy, survivor, author, excellent rice maker, fantastic documentarian. I loved hearing Keith's journey on the show, and even more so, his journey after the show, bringing so many amazing, important stories to us through the medium of film. I'm going to put a link to the movies that we talked about in the episode, in the show notes, Mary's Journey, and all the other great ones we talked about. Jeff, where, where are the show notes? The show notes, go to jeffisfunny.com, click on episode 66. And all the show notes will be there, little synopsis, links, all that good stuff right there at your fingertips. All right. Well, the end of the interview means we're getting close to the end of the show. Jeff, say it isn't so. It is. I'm I'm sorry. It's the way it works. We wait for the show. We experience the show and then it ends. I know I feel the same way, but there's going to be a new one next week. Hang on. Just hang on. But The show's not over yet. We still got one more thing to do, right? That's right. It's time for a trending hashtag from the world of Hashtag Roundup, where we read amazing tweets from tweeters across the world that played hashtag games from Hashtag Roundup. Hashtag Roundup can be found on Twitter at Hashtag Roundup. You can download the free Hashtag Roundup app, totally free on Google Play and iTunes Apple Store. Grab the app, follow along, and play hashtag games with us daily. And you know what can happen? One day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Tawaskin Show. Fame and fortune, well at least fame, await you. This week's hashtag is a fun one from one of the best games on Twitter. Rose Rage, run by Ro, good buddy of mine. His hashtag, hashtag MyCookingSkillsInclude. Thought that was a great tie-in to the episode. Chef famey has got skills, but let's see what you have. And let's explore that with the hashtag MyCookingSkillsInclude. Jackie's include takeout, curbside, pickup, or dine-in. I'm feeling you, Jackie. Robin's cooking skills include folding in the cheese. What does that even mean? You fold in the cheese. <laughs> Races cooking skills include anything that can be made in a toaster. I'm smelling Pop-Tarts. TV and sweatpants cooking skills include adding copious amounts of alcohol to any dish. Alcohol definitely can add to any dish. Dan's cooking skills include knowing the difference between barbecuing and grilling. I still don't know. I'm going to have to Google that. Frank's cooking skills include removing the batteries from the smoke detector. (laughs) Frank sounds like you're cooking with too much smoke. Dan's cooking skills include melting cheese on top of everything to hide the fact that it's either overcooked or just unappetizing. Cheese can solve everything. Terrence's cooking skills include hot pockets and a microwave. <laughs> I like your style, Terrence. Daryl's cooking skills include defrosting ice cubes. Is there any other way to make water? True North's cooking skills include shucking corn. And the final cooking skill comes from David. David's cooking skills include burning water. I don't even know if that's possible. That Maybe that's how you get the smoke and why we need the batteries for the smoke detector. Oh! all right well those were some amazing hashtag my cooking skills include as always i'll retweet these on my twitter at jeff show and i'll list all these tweeters in the show notes you know where those are go find them retweet them show them some love and keep playing hashtag games and one day i'll read one of your tweets on my show looking forward to it I'm also looking forward to seeing you next week because we're at the end of this episode. Can't believe it. Episode 66 is come and gone. I want to thank my awesome guest, Keith Famey. I want to thank again my daughter Sophie for giving me all the good survivor questions to ask him. She's a super fan. And I want to thank all of you for stopping by week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your
0: host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at JeffDwoskinShow. And we'll see you next time.